0: This week on Dig Me Out... Tell me what you liked, and tell me about your thought whether this record stands the test of time.
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. Tim and Jay review Deserter Songs by Mercury Rev. Well, goodbye,
0: love you in Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 232. We're in season five, and as we have numerous times this season, we have a requested review. Requested
1: Requested review.
0: Jay, of our requested reviews, we have covered uh, a lot of bands. And of our non-requested reviews, we've covered a lot of bands. But I think this might be our first band from Buffalo, New York. Really? Yeah. Because we haven't <sighs> done a Goo Goo Dolls album.
1: I didn't know they were from Buffalo.
0: Uh, I did. Interesting. Huh. I kind of... I forgot. And then I, when I was doing the research, I was like, oh, yeah, this band's from Buffalo. Um, yeah, we're talking about Mercury Rev. And they're... 1998 album deserter songs it was suggested by tony phillips who I, I think suggested an album previously i i'm not sure i think it i want to say it was the heat miser album but my brain might be malfunctioning hmm. it's entirely possible it's late jay are you familiar with mercury rev uh,
1: i remember a lot of hype about this record it seemed to be on all the critics lists uh the year it came out um, I saw the album cover a lot in magazines and websites or what have you. And I don't, I don't remember how much I heard of it at the time. I'm sure I heard bits and pieces here and there and probably sampled mm-hmm. it at like a listening station or something. But, um, other than that, I don't know a whole lot about the band, I guess just based on, on, on all that, I had a, a mental idea what they would be like, but nothing real concrete.
0: Yeah, this was a band that I, I got onto late. I actually didn't... I, I wasn't aware of the band around around the time this album came out. I was after this and went backwards and listened to this record. It's been a long time since I listened to this record and um, they just... So the last album came out in 2008 and they just like this week put out some new songs that are going to be released. I, I don't know if it's going to be on a new album But they posted some new songs. So it's been, you know, eight years, seven years since the last Mercury Rev album. So let's talk about, so we're all on the same page, the history of Mercury Rev.
1: History of the band.
0: So the band formed in Buffalo, New York in 1989. The original personnel for the band were David Baker on vocals... Jonathan Donahue on vocals and guitar, Sean McAwiak, I think is how you say that, a.k.a. Grasshopper. That's how he's referred to, Grasshopper. He's on guitars and clarinet. Suzanne Thorpe on flute, David Fridman on bass, and Jimmy Chambers on drums. Now, you might recognize David Fridman's name as he went on to be a producer um, for the Flaming Lips, Jonathan Donahue played guitar on two of the uh, Flaming Lips albums. Fridman is a well-known and, and off, well-traveled producer. I think he's currently working with Baroness on their next record.
1: Hmm, that's interesting.
0: Yes, not a
1: match I'd I thought of, but it could be cool.
0: Yeah. The debut album, Your Self-Esteem, came out in 1991 on Columbia Records. Um, Their second album, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but Bocces, B-O-C-E-S, came out in June 1993, and citing musical and personal differences, uh, lead singer David Baker left the band, and that's when Jonathan Donahue stepped up to be the lead singer. So their first post-Baker album was "See You on the Other Side," which was released in September, 1995. The same year, the group also recorded and released the album "Paralyzed Mind" of the Archangel Void, but they were un- it was under a different name called Harmony Rockets. So the unique thing about this album is that the album features 40 tracks, each a minute long, of psychedelic improvised music. Okay. No, I'm sorry. It's a single 40-minute track. I read that wrong. So it's not 41-minute long tracks. It's one 40-minute long track. Oh, goodness. Okay. Yeah, there you go. That makes more sense. Yeah. If you're going to do a psych- psych- psychedelic improvised music. <laughs> <coughs> I have the Ramones made a
1: psychedelic improvised music, it would be the other one.
0: Exactly. So in September 1998, Deserter Songs was released. It became the enemy album of the year and it had it produced three top 40 UK singles. Now the interesting thing and we'll get into some notes about this is that it features appearances by Garth Hudson and Levon Helm of the band. The band, not just wow. the band, but the right. band. Uh the, the next album came out on September 11th, 2001, that was called All Is Dream. It was 4 years until Secret Migration, Migration which came out in January of 2005 and then three years later they released Snowflake Midnight in September of 2008 and along with that they released an mp3 album called Strange Attractor which was all instrumentals and as I mentioned the band recently released some new songs um, and possibility of an album coming out soon so if you like Tony would like to suggest an album for us to review please visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com so we did get some feedback On this record, over at digmeoutpodcast.com, Stephen Frazier said, Goddess on a Highway is uh, one track that sticks in my mind. And Dave Fridman uh, of the Flaming Lips, Weezer, Wheat, Verbena, Sparkle Horse. He says, I have both their records, weird but good. Both their first records, weird but good, a bit different in his time when it came out. I think there's a lot of bands nowadays that copy the style that they had, such as Glass Animals Um, as being one of them without anybody knowing it over at facebook paul gill says i saw these guys live with jason faulkner opening in bellingham washington for this album and they were fantastic live really won me over as i was mainly there to see faulkner who was great too this album really holds up in my opinion and fritzman's production in particular stands out it has a timeless feel I think this was way ahead of its time and the precursor to a lot of music in the next decade such as Grandaddy, My Morning Jacket and even Arcade Fire. It's a real treat on the it's a treat on the headphones and not too heady. Uh, not too heady to crank on a stereo and is a and is solid from start to finish. The vocals aren't for everyone but it grew on me. On the contrary, Darren Bevington Leach says didn't age well in my opinion. Mm. So, you have Paul and steven who are on the pro side and darren who was on the nay side couple of notes about this record their albums have come out on major labels the first couple of records came out on columbia and their third record see you on their other side which was uh, donahue's first as lead singer um, he considered it the band's best album and it was a commercial failure so they decided to make one more record. Um, in which they were just going to basically do what they wanted and not try to write radio songs. And they expected that they would make the record and then the band would break up. So they asked to be released from their label, which at this time they had left Columbia and were on beggars banquet, which is a pretty prestigious label in the nineties to be on. So they get dropped from beggars banquet. Um, The drummer, Jimmy chambers quits. Their manager is gone and their lawyers are all gone. So they have no infrastructure at this point. and the band was in debt. so so they're at a pretty dark point at this at this juncture. Um, the Chemical Brothers reached out to Jimmy Donahue because they wanted him to play on one of their songs and he was shocked that anybody knew who the band was so he was like, okay, sure. And that got him back into making music after he was in a bit of a depression after the failure of the previous record and the, and the infrastructure of the band falling apart. So Donahue and Grasshopper relocate to the Catskill Mountains, and they start writing and recording the songs. And the reason why uh, Garth Hudson and Livon Helm end up playing is that they live in the Catskills. So they ended up joining the recording sessions of what they were putting down. So, as they're recording, they sign to V2 Records. um, And they start funding the full length. And they spend two months in Tarbox Studio recording string arrangements and mixing the album with who is now a former member of the band, David Fridman. He left um, and they replaced him on bass uh, as he went off to just do producing. So instead of adding extra guitars and distortion, they decided to take a different approach, and they added strings, horns, and woodwinds. And here's the interesting part: instead of a normal mastering job, they mastered it to 35 millimeter magnetic film. So Friedman explained that he wa- he wanted to give the music an intentionally weird sound with a cinematic because of the cinematic bent of the music upon the completion they're not expecting this to really do anything the Chemical Brothers who, Frid, who uh, Donahue who Donny who had just worked with um, got an advanced copy and they started telling everybody about how great the record was so before they even got to the UK people were clamoring for them to you know play shows and singles to be released and it sort of became a major hit over in the UK more so than it was in the United States the other interesting thing is that while Mercury Rev were working on this, record at Tarbox Studios with Fridman Fridman was also working simultaneously on the Flaming Lips album The Soft Bulletin and if you listen to those two records there are a lot of similarities between those two records and Wayne Coyne said from The Flaming Lips I think without deserter songs being so significant The Soft Bulletin would probably The Soft Bulletin would probably have not been followed too much but since it was put in the same vein people became very interested in us so that's interesting because if you think about where the lips were at that time, you know, they had made a, a one-hit wonder single with She Don't Use Jelly. Uh, then they had Cloud's Taste Metallic, which wasn't as successful of a follow-up. Then they did the Zorica box set. Not the box set, but like the, the, the you know, you played like the, the multiple discs at the same time. Hmm. Um, yeah. the, so the soft bulletin is really what put them back on the map as far as being a band and also being a serious sort of like critical contender as well as being a commercial or a commercially viable band thanks to the singles on that record. And then that led to Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots, which I think probably is their most commercial, commercially successful record uh, with Do You Realize and some of the other tracks. So that's the history and then some extra notes about how this record sort of came together. We need to talk about, Jay, the actual album itself. So let's get into that. Let's do that. Let's get into that. We're going to talk about Mercury Rev, Deserter Songs. We both had some level of slight familiarity with the band and, and the album. So let's address a couple things um, with our what we liked and what we didn't like. Uh, Jay, I'm going to throw it to you first since I've been talking for a while. People are probably sick of my voice at this point. Hmm. Uh, tell me what you liked and tell me about your thoughts about whether this record stands the test of time.
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I felt like I agreed with both the comments that we got about this record. Um, there are some moments where it does feel like that I don't know, indicative of the kind of late nineties uh, sort of, Psychedelic folk indie movement that started to happen there. I think that you talked about with like Flaming Lips in this band and Sparkle Horse, and there were granddaddies in there, granddaddy. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's proximity to that for me at least dates it a little bit to that time. Um, a lot of that has to do with the vocal, the style of the vocal, how it's produced, um, a little bit to how the instrumentation uh, is presented. So you know, it's it's a lot of strings and and horns and instruments like that, uh, but it's also a bit quirky, mm-hmm. in, in that regard. Um, so, you know, there's aspects of that, at least for me. You know, dates it to that time, and the more I listen to it, uh, I think the more accepting of of a lot of that stuff I I am. Um, the more the vo- vocal kind of grows on me, and I can kind of get past the. The oddness of it, and sort of, I don't know. It reminded me a lot of uh, uh, Flaming Lips in that regard. Even the melodies,
0: mm-hmm. sort of a,
1: uh, I don't know. I mean, this in the most respectful way, but it's kind of a, you know, a poor man's Beach Boys. Sometimes where you know, right? You know, people who don't have the vocal ability of that, of that, uh, that level of talent, but still. You know, write that style of melody and, and convey it the best they can. You know, there's really, in terms of what I like about it, there's some really good, uh, and interesting performances on here, and some interesting instrumentation. Um, you know, a weird mix of strings and odd, kind of, I don't know, keyboardy sounds, but still remains pretty organic. Um, there's some actually pretty pretty good guitar parts that pop out every now and then. I mean, there's not very much guitar on this record, but there's a couple moments at least. And, you know, I think overall, you know, the songs are pretty strong. You know, they can, there's some, there's some throwaways on here and some interludes and some, some that were more successful than others, but, you know, there's some pretty, there's some pretty decent melodies on here and some pretty decent pop indie songs mm-hmm so yeah I mean I think those are, those are the pluses for me
0: in terms of the pluses for me um I'm gonna agree with you on I think that at first listen you're kind of like what the hell is going on do I hear a, a, a saw like a musical saw and do I hear like there's one song I think there's like a saxophone it's a Hudson line it has is that a sax and then a then there's a guitar solo and then there's, an electric, there's, like, each instrument takes, like, a solo part. And then there's this, like, crazy electric piano, which I can only imagine is being played by um, one of the guys from the band, either um, Hudson or Helm, because uh, they're both keyboard players. And it it's a really... And it's a short song, too. It's only 254. Then you compare that to, like, Endlessly, which has that weird almost like dreamy feel to it with this i don't know it sounds like it belongs into like a weird 1950s like uh children's brother's grim sort of fairy tale type thing like it's so weird then as you listen to it more and more you go oh you kind of figure out where all the things fit in and how they're structured and how they're um it's not as disconnected as it sounds like the first kind of first time you're listening through it um and songs like holes and "Got Us on a highway are definitely much more like straightforward but a lot of the other tracks are at first listen they're they're a bit uh they're not challenging they're just if you're expecting an alternative rock album and you hear this it, it would be just sort of shocking um, I do agree with you on the vocal that you know from the first notes that get sung I mean there's just an instant comparison to Flaming Lips um, it's just inevitable now I mean there's nothing you can really do about it Yep. and um, I think the thing that separates Jonathan Donahue is that you mentioned the the Beach Boys, and I think that, that that's a good, you know, especially like their, you know, Pet Sounds era type stuff, which is obviously there's some something drawn from there, both musically and vocally, is that um, I would have liked to have heard more, I guess, layering of the vocals. I think that would have been interesting um, with doing such lush orchestration on a lot of these songs and layering of parts that it would have been cool if if they took the same approach with the vocals Uh, for the most part it's just him on a lot of these songs with maybe like a harmony or a a doubled part but that's about it um I think that would have separated him a little bit more from what the flaming lips sound like what Wayne Coyne sounds like Um, it's not bad per se it's just that uh, it's familiar and it's not as distinctive as maybe it could have been. Yeah. Um,
1: it made me want to actually listen to this record, it made me want to go to listen to Sparkle Horse. Because <laughs> hmm. uh, in some ways this this album is actually not as adventurous as maybe I expected it to be or hoped it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the some of the music just sounds like Pink Floyd played on horns or strings at times, or you know what I mean? Like it's right. not it's not pushing the boundaries as much as maybe I would have thought it was going to. And, and just reminded me of sparkle horse, but they're a band that are, you know, I guess they're not a band, but th- those are albums that push things a little further, you know, a little bit harder to characterize and uh, right. uh, predict where they're going to go. And just w- a lot m- uh, more oddities, I guess on them and I, I would I would welcome that on this on this record. I mean, at first, like I said, it, it's a little bit uh, to get into. It's pretty mid tempo, you know, it's sort of a certain kind of mood record. Um, you really gotta pay attention to it. Um, I, I agree it's better with headphones. I think it works with speakers, but it's better with headphones.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, and once you kind of absorb it, you I was left wanting a little bit more. Um and the areas where they do go off and explore are not—I don't think—tremendously successful. Um, you know, a couple of Segway songs are not great. Um, you know, track ten, uh, pick up if you're there, stands out. The the bonus track at the end of uh, Delta Sun, bottleneck stomp, is <laughs> regrettable. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Like it Yeah, they like, know. And that's actually
0: uh,
1: a a new keyboard and is playing with all the samples. Apparently that's an instrument that they built. Oh, that's unfortunate. (laughs) Because it doesn't sound like it. It just sounds like a keyboard.
0: It seemed like, you know, with bands like My Morning Jacket and Arcade Fire, Mm sort of taking like the big idea songs and the multi-instrumentalist songs and, you know, Arcade Fire having 10 people in the band and playing... Pianos and keyboards and, uh, you know, three guitars and lutes and strings and all this stuff and creating this big like orchestral sound.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: My Morning Jacket sort of doing the same and some other ass in some different ways. Seems like those bands sort of took what, like Mercury Rev, did at a much smaller, you know, scale in terms of popularity and were able to expand on that in the '90s. Do you think it was because? They were good at like interpreting that and making it more palatable to the masses, or do you think that maybe it just took some time for people to catch up to that sound? Who who was better at it? Like arcade, I would say Arcade Fire is drawing directly from like Mercury Rev. Oh, oh, oh I see. I see.
1: Um, I guess I don't know. I I I kind of viewed this record as. I mean, I get that. I don't know. My experience with it was that it was more of a, and this is, I, I kind of read it as not as much of a band thing, and that's kind of the way I experienced it. So regardless of if it was or wasn't, I kind of like listened to it and interpreted it as being a lot more a single person project. Um, and even though it was lush sounding, in some ways, in other ways, it's. I don't know. I I felt like it was all a little bit like, you know, smoke and mirrors uh, in terms of like a lot of keyboards and, you know, it sounded big but wasn't really mm-hmm. um, like a big ensemble band like what you're describing. Um, now, I mean, that was just totally my personal experience based on whatever prejudices or knowledge I had of the band and whatever going into this. But I don't know. That's the kind of the, the way that I viewed it. Um, I think – Again, though, that's it, it. Um, I think all the bands that you talked about, because they are, I think, more of a live band scenario, um, they're able to kind of push in interesting and further directions than I think a lot of this record does. Like, I think Arcade Fire is able to go to places that this record doesn't quite get to. Um, mm-hmm. I think. You know, I mentioned the song Delta Sun Bottleneck Stomp. That's one of the few where uh, it really expresses itself as a a band to me. Um, and it's, it's not my favorite song on the record, but it certainly stood out as being really different and uh, uh, an interesting blend of, like, kind of New Orleans and dance music. And I, I don't know. It's a very, you know, unique... Uh, unique sound on that song. And that's kind of, I think, maybe where I expected a lot of the, or I would like a lot of the rest of the record to go, just in terms of, you know, a lot more genre bending, a lot more unexpected, a little bit more inspired at times. Um, mm-hmm. that, that song has a little bit, it has some life to it. You know, some of the other songs, they're nice and they can be sweet or pretty or whatever, you know, sincere or sad, but, you know, this can be, a little bit lifeless or numb kind of like a Pink Floyd record sometimes whereas I think the song like that all of a sudden it starts to sound like a, a bit of a party and and uh, you know I, I wish there were more moments like that on the record
0: I agree I, I think that it would benefit from a bit more variety I guess the tempo department but there is an aspect of this record that I do just sort of like putting it on and just getting letting like this lush orchestration and you know non-traditional arrangements uh, to sort of take over and I don't have to like analyze guitar parts and stuff like that like actually the one of the most jarring parts is is the uh, guitar solo on Hudson line like that's probably the, the thing that sounds the most out of place on the entire record. Sounds like this like nineteen eighties like belongs on like a nineteen eighties Richard Marks single or yeah. something. is
1: it the saxophone.
0: That the whole song is just weird. Yeah. I, I love the, the electric piano part on it, but the other parts I don't know. Yeah. It should be in a, like a Schlitz commercial from 87 or something. Yeah. Catch yeah. the Hudson Line. You know I love the city But I haven't got the time
1: <laughs> Satellites are chasing Silver clouds away Mercury's a falling Yeah, forgot to pray? Silver trains will whistle by the moon, Molly has her kite, Joe has his balloons, satellites are chasing, silver clouds away, I'm stuck on the tracks, sleep away the day, gonna leave the city, to hop a train tonight, got a one way ticket, the moon is shining bright, gonna leave the city, gonna catch the Hudson line, cause you know I love the city, but I haven't got the time, That, that's kind of where i'm getting at some of this maybe at the time felt a lot more experimental or weird but now it almost mm-hmm. seems like like you're saying like extremely conservative <laughs> in, in hindsight because it's i don't know maybe the, the contrast doesn't exist as it did then sure so now when you listen to it you're like oh well this just sounds like kind of a jazz band or something or you know what i mean like muzak.
0: Right. I do think it sounds great, though. I think the production sounds great.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have, uh, I don't have any issues with that. It holds up really well. I think the version on Spotify is remastered. Yes, there's probably. actually. Did you talk about the instrumental version that's out?
0: No, I hadn't gotten to that yet. So for yeah. people who don't like Jonathan Donahue's vocals, there's an entire instrumental version of the record, which, which I believe came out choice. with the re-release uh
1: that's an interesting decision to do that (laughs) right uh one thing i noticed that is odd i don't know if you picked up on this but i think the first three songs holes tonight shows and endlessly don't feature vocals in the chorus i don't know if you noticed that but they they have verse vocals but i think in all three of those songs when they get to the what would be a chorus it's just instrumental and the hook is provided by some other instrument. Um, he doesn't, uh, he st- kind of stops doing that. Um, and, and for a lot of the rest of the record, it might happen a couple other times, but I found that interesting. It, it kind of worked. I, I felt like the songs like uh, Opus 40, for example, where, you know, there's, there's a strong vocal chorus work better, but I was kind of surprised that, uh, those worked as successfully as they were. I would, I would normally, you know, a lot of the bands couldn't pull that off. I wouldn't, I would be knocking them a lot harder.
0: Hmm. I, you know, I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. Uh, it does start out with musical choruses. Um, mm-hmm. Not to say that there's not a, a hook. But yeah. The, yeah. Like holes has it. Um, even a vocal, like a repetitive vocal hook, but it's sort of like in the, as a part of the verse. But, yeah, that's an, interest, an interesting choice. Um, it, it's
1: certainly, it, I mean, it, it sounds complete, you know what I mean? And it definitely has a chorus, it feels like a chorus, it has a hook element to it. It's just doesn't use a vocal, which
0: kind of a cool idea. So let's talk about our overall ratings on this record, Jay. Were the album better EP or decent single? Where are you at?
1: I think a couple listens into this, I was at an EP, um, but I found myself enjoying it more and more with each listen and kind of worked my way up into a full album. I also think it's, you know, just historically significant enough to to warrant a full album.
0: I'm going to go with you, but I would cut like four songs. I'd make it like an eight or possibly a nine song album. But I think you could cut... I think, like, the first two instrumentals are pretty uh, unremarkable. I agree with you on Pick Up If You're There is is the strongest of the three instrumentals. So I would cut... I collect coins and the happy end. Yeah, I'd have
1: no problem with those, being shocked.
0: And I'm not a big fan of the Hudson line, so that would probably be my other... Cut, and then you could get rid of the, the bonus hidden track and I'd be fine with that. So that's a nine song record and I think that would, you know, it, it would have a different flow without those instrumentals, but I'd be comfortable with that. So that'd be my pick for uh, re, uh, reassembling this record. Uh, if you think that we have done a disgrace by suggesting cutting any songs from this album, please let us know and leave us some feedback. Uh, either at iTunes or on our Facebook or Twitter pages. Uh, If you agree with us, leave even more feedback. (laughs) And of course, you can always uh, suggest an album for us to review over at digmeoutpodcast.com by going to our request review page. Uh, Jay, as it is, we'll be back next week with another requested review. Um, Because we did our interview last week, so we had been doing the interviews at the end of the month, but We switched it this month, so the month will end with a review instead of an interview. But don't worry, folks. We'll have some very cool interviews coming up in the coming months as well as some more roundtables, which if you are interested in being part of a roundtable, uh, make sure to check out when we post the previews for those. We're always looking for guests, and um, our next one's going to be on... Influential bands of the 90s. 90s bands that went on to influence the bands of the 2000s, whether uh, we expected them to or not. Take, for instance, Green Day. Did anybody expect them to have a Broadway musical? I know. And uh, be rocking and in the Hall of Fame. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
1: That is crazy. Was that last year or the year before? Last year. Yeah, I would have. I mean, that's one of those bands where... I would have never envisioned anything beyond that first those first couple singles Mm -hmm. so that'll be an interesting one to talk about.
0: Yep, lots of bands that we thought might be uh, influential but aren't, thought might have stood the test of time but didn't uh, and some that didn't, we are shocked, so we'll talk about that Coming up in a couple episodes, like I said, if you want to be a part of it, hit us up, shoot us an email, uh, Facebook, Twitter, all that sort of stuff. So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages.